Section 9 of Here and Hereafter by Barry Payne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Here and Hereafter by Barry Payne. The Act of Heroism. Part 1. Do not go outside your part, for whatever part in life you may be cast. If you are nature's low comedian, do not usurp the business of the hero. Hear the plain story of Alfred Smithers, who stood five foot eight, had sandy hair and an apologetic eye, earned four pounds a week by bookkeeping, and was a good husband until, by the merest chance, he was led into the paths of heroism. Chance plays the devil at times. Emily Trimmins, housemaid by profession and hysterical by nature, found that the postman was walking out with another lady. Consulting her recollection of penny romances, she saw that suicide was clearly indicated. The relics of sense which distinguished hysteria from madness made her choose the manner of her suicide. She went up onto the heath one afternoon and flung herself into a pond, in the presence of several philosophical male loafers, one emotional nursemaid and two fat-headed children. Her last thought, as she entered the water, was which of the male loafers would pull her out again. The first loafer said that that was as silly an act as he ever saw, and he should be moving home. The second loafer observed that something ought to be done at once. The third called for help. The fourth said the police were never there when they were wanted. The emotional nursemaid sat down at once on the grass, removed her hat, unhooked her dress at the neck, fanned herself with a handkerchief and said, Oh, that has give me a turn. The two fat-headed children cried, Ain't that funny? Nurse, make her come out and do it again. Nurse, ain't that funny? Nurse, make her come out and do it again. Da capo. And at this moment, Chance, playing the devil as aforesaid, brought upon the scene Alfred Smithers, who had fished the pond and believed the depth nowhere exceeded three feet, who saw a policeman with a coil of rope under his arm rapidly approaching, who observed that he had an audience and was accordingly inspirited. Go in from where you are, shouted the second loafer. Don't waste time thinking about it. Smithers removed his silk hat and frock coat. That's courage, that's a man, screamed the emotional nursemaid. That settled it. With a stentorian cry of, Stand back there, to the two fat-headed children, a cry which was not needed, but inserted by a way of trimming, Smithers jumped feet foremost. There was a mighty splash. When it subsided, Smithers was observed standing in the pond, the water reaching up to the terminals of his string-mended braces. The two children rolled over and over on the grass in fits of inextinguishable laughter. It was a good afternoon. They had had nothing quite so good since the pantomime. Don't wait for her to come up, roared the second loafer. Dive, that's what you've got to do. I know what to do all right, replied Smithers, who, as a matter of fact, didn't. He took one step forward and incontinently vanished down a fifteen-foot hole, of the existence of which, though he had fished that pond, he had previously been unaware. As he was going down the hole, he met Emily Trimmins coming up. She paused and soldered herself firmly on to as much of Smithers as she could reach. He trod water very fast and very furiously, like a child stamping its feet on the nursery floor because it mayn't begin tea-cake first. He lashed out hard and indiscriminately with both hands, and might have succeeded in scraping off most of the half-drowned lady, but that he found in his struggles they had become entangled and tied together by a rope. 
he could remember no prayer but the grace after meat, which he repeated to himself fervently. Then he gave up. His breath exploded into the green jelly. He gave one more kick and lost his interest in things. In the meantime, the policeman, assisted by the loafers, was pulling hard at the other end of the rope and brought to bank a job lot of mixed scarecrows. Those being sorted out on the grass proved to be one moiety smithers and one moiety trimmings. The treatment of the apparently drowned was then proceeded with energetically to the satisfaction of a considerable number of spectators. They had gathered in a moment. Smithers came to himself feeling ill but magnificent and assured the policeman that he was all right. He was not much to look at at the moment, yet everywhere he felt the admiring gaze upon him. Bravo! exclaimed an old gentleman. A very chorus of bravos followed, in which the policeman and the doctor, who was busy with Emily Trimmins, joined enthusiastically. Oh, it was good. It was very joyous. You done splendid, sir, said the policeman. The way you just managed to grab the end of the rope as you went down the hole to fetch her up was very smart. You must be pretty quick and neat with your hands and pretty cool and collected too, for I dare say she gave a lot of trouble when you got her. Well, you see, said Smithers indulgently, she'd quite lost her head. And yet you managed to get the rope under her armpits, tied a good knot, and wound the slack twice round yourself, and it couldn't have been done quicker if you'd been on dry land instead of under water and hampered by the woman. Emily Trimmins was by this time so far recovered as to be ripe for removal in a four-wheeler with a policeman on the box. She did not look pretty. Her hair had come down, and something had happened to her nose. It was suggested that she had struck it entering the water. Alfred Smithers remembered at an early stage of the struggle he had kicked something. It was not worth mentioning. He took, under advice, another drop of brandy and was driven home. The crowd cheered. Mrs. Smithers was a woman of some energy. Smithers was wrapped in hot blankets and tucked away in bed in no time. He had a hot water bottle at his feet and steaming rum and water at his head. Mrs. Smithers sent a polite note to Mrs. Garson and Begg to say why her husband would be unable to be at work as usual on the following day. She threw the story over the right-hand wall of the backyard to Mrs. Warboys and over the left-hand wall to the widow of the late Charles Push. In twenty minutes the story was all over the terrace and had not shrunk. There was great excitement and three separate houses hoped that Mrs. Smithers would look in for a cup of tea and would be glad if they could do anything to help. She accepted two of the invitations and would visit the third house on the morrow, and would be obliged by the loan of a nutmeg, it being necessary to keep up an internal glow after prolonged struggle in cold water. The daredevil had dived six times before he found the woman, and the patient otherwise being likely to take a chill in the vitals and die hurriedly. Then she decided to have the newspaper cuttings framed. The medal would go on the mantelpiece under glass. Smithers lay upstairs with the feeling that his head was a large lump of dough, traversed by a steam-propelled roller, but satisfied that heroism and hot rum were both excellent. He was soon asleep. Glory reached its flood on the following day. An offering was bought from the mother of Emily Trimmins, a box encrusted without with small shells and two pieces of looking-glass, and lined with pink satin within. The slip of paper which accompanied it was ascribed a mother's tribute to a daughter's preserver. The newspapers on the whole did well, though the Times was quite outclassed in the race for news, having but two lines to the half-column of the local organ. The magistrate cautioned Miss Trimmins with some severity 
and handed her over to the care of her mother. He said that the loafers were not men. He referred to the intrepid courage, cool head, strength wedded with skill of Alfred Smithers, one of the men of whom England had good cause to be proud. In the course of a week, the postman had explained away the other lady, and was au mieux with Emily Trimmings, who, so far as this story is concerned, may now take a seat at the back. A considerable number of Smithers' friends were waiting, when the magistrate had finished, to have the pleasure of shaking hands with Smithers and congratulating him, and so on. And that night, one of the men, of whom England had good cause to be proud, went home most painfully and uncompromisingly drunk. Part 2. Alfred Smithers, as he made his modest breakfast of a cup of tea and two liver pills next morning, explained to his wife that it had not been the drink so much as the reaction. She said that he needn't have taken the reaction. She should overlook it this time and say no more, knowing what he was when not misled. But no amount of ironing would make that hat look anything again. He went to work feeling that the glory had been turned a little lower. There were more newspaper cuttings, and later there was something on vellum. Smithers said rather bitterly that the society seemed to do things on the cheap. A medal came at last, presented by the vicar on behalf of a few friends and local inhabitants. It was of silver and very large. It was kept on the mantelpiece and shown to everyone who would look at it. But the excitement was dying down. Glory was on the ebb. Mrs. Smithers would sometimes allow two days to pass without alluding to the act of heroism. Smithers watched the ebbing tide with inward rage and with many vain efforts to stay it. The neighbourhood sickened slowly of conversations on the different ways of rescuing the drowning, conversations initiated by Smithers in order to lead to the case of the poor girl, Emily Trimmins. But he had eaten praise poison, and no other diet was rich enough for him now. The neighbourhood wearying of him and hinting as much, he would slip the medal into his pocket on Saturday afternoons, get on his bicycle and seek fresh fields. A little group and a bar parlour sufficed. Whatever the group was discussing when Smithers first leaned his bicycle against the horse trough outside, five minutes later they were listening while Smithers got in with, I remember once being on the heath when some fool of a girl jumped into twenty feet of water. What did I do? Watch for the bubbles coming up and then dived. The devil of it was that there was a strong cross-current and... etc. Later the medal would be produced. Poor Alfred Smithers. Nature's low comedian, and yet smitten with a raging madness for the strut, the soliloquy, the limelight, the sympathetic music, the roar of applause. In his new part of hero, he invented business that was not good. He began to be, as he phrased it, master in his own house. He interfered in matters which were the special province of Mrs. Smithers. He gave detailed instructions in domestic subjects of which he was completely ignorant, and brought upon himself ridicule. He was rude to Mrs. Smithers, and said that she needed to be driven with a firm hand. He told the eight-pound general that his word was law, and she forthwith gave notice on the ground that she could put up with anything except haughtiness. Mrs. Smithers told him, with some frankness, that she was glad to see his back when he went to business of a morning, for he was more nuisance in a house than a cartload of monkeys. At business he had got, as a rule, just enough sense not to try any heroism. He was a good bookkeeper, and he had got a good place, and he knew it. One day, however, as his mind strayed for a moment to high things, he made a small blunder affecting a large sum, and the sum got on to the wrong side of the book and caused trouble. 
In due course, Mr. Peter Begg said, "'Send me Smithers.' The clerk who took the message said to Smithers, "'You're going to get beans.' And at this all the heroism in Smithers arose and boiled over, and he spluttered out that he thought it would be rather the other way. "'Look here,' said Mr. Begg, "'how do you come to make such an infernal fool of yourself as this, Smithers?' Smithers was now well alight. "'Kindly understand once for all that there are some expressions I don't permit to be used to me by any man.' Mr. Begg gazed at Smithers pensively through his eyeglass and sighed. "'Get out!' he said. I'll finish with you tomorrow morning. You may be sober by then. Get out. Go on. Smithers got out, and a slight chill fell on him. Possibly he had gone too far. He was unusually civil to his wife at supper that night, and appeared somewhat preoccupied. After supper, he asked his wife what she thought of Klondike. I wouldn't care to have much to do with it. Why? Well, I had a few words with Begg today. Peter Begg, the old one. I was in the right as it happened, but something I said seemed to sting him rather. I can't say how well it will end. I've as good as promised to see him again tomorrow morning, but he may not meet my views. And you know how it is when either the senior partner's got to go or the bookkeeper. You apologise and ask to be took on again, said Mrs. Smithers, going right through the elegancies of her husband's version and getting straight down to the bedrock facts. That's what you'll do if you're not silly. You don't want to lose a good place. I don't know, said Smithers with an air of melancholy. Same old drudgery day after day, and what's it all come to? Nothing. I might strike it if we went to Klondike. You aren't going to know Klondike, said Mrs. Smithers. I'm not sure it wouldn't be the right life for me. I'm a natural man of action. I do the bookkeeping well enough, but adventures and emergencies are more my line. You remember what the magistrate said when... I remember how drunk you were that night. Little you know, said Smithers, though conscious that the retort was somewhat vague, and after some meditation he managed to supplement it as follows. And little you care either. Top button's been off my waistcoat for the last four days. You've got a tongue in your head to ask with, haven't you? Give it here and don't grumble. And a little later, Alfred Smithers, with a distinct chill on the heroism, went up to bed. The chill was even more distinct when in the small hours of the morning Mrs. Smithers shook him by the shoulder, awoke him, told him that there was a burglar in the kitchen and asked him to go down. In the small hours of the morning one's vitality is low. Part 3 They had been unable to get any satisfactory sleep after the disturbance and they breakfasted early. Mrs. Smithers looked amused. Alfred Smithers looked conciliatory. I want you to understand how it was, he said pleadingly. I understand it all right, and how my poor sides do hate with laughing. Lock our door as quietly as you can, you says, and don't make a sound, you says. For, you says, if he knows we've discovered him, he'll have the lives of both of us. Sounds funnier still when it's said over again by daylight. Oh, my poor sides. And even then, Alfred Smithers did not become rebellious. On the contrary, in mirthless and subservient way, he smiled. I'm quite willing to own I blundered in what seems now a rather funny way, but it wasn't in the way you think, my dear. My dear Agnes, it really wasn't. Tell your own story, said Mrs. Smithers, with a victor's easiness. I was awoke sudden, said Smithers. I don't suppose I was more than half awake, which accounts for the error of judgment. I'm a man and not a machine. We all blunder at times. I own I made a mistake, and I can afford to laugh at it. He managed to jerk up another semblance of a smile. At first I said that what you heard was a rat, and what you'd seen was a shadow. 
Then when you made me look through the corner of the blind, and I saw the end of the man's leg drawn inwardly through the downstairs window, I, being half asleep, supposed that it was a regular professional burglar, and if it had been that, my advice would have been correct. Professional burglars carry revolvers in their hip pockets, and they'll shoot anybody, police or any man, to destroy evidence against them. Very well. What good was I unarmed against an armed burglar? Foolhardiness isn't courage. If you knew life as I know it, you'd realise that. You didn't agree with my ideas, and I was half asleep. I own you were right. You said... Mrs Smithers took up the story triumphantly. I said it was stuff and nonsense, and so it was. Burglars don't come to a penny-farthing place like this, and if they did, they wouldn't wake up the house opening a window. Two drops of oil, a shove with a knife and a wad of paper to deaden the sound of the spring when it comes back. Smithers recovered himself sufficiently to ask how they put in the two drops of oil and the wad of paper. How should I know, not being a burglar myself? Anyhow, I was right. I said it was just some tramp new to the business and hungry for a supper, and that he'd bolt as soon as he heard anybody moving, and didn't he? Yes, said Smithers, he did. I was just thinking of getting out of bed and following you down the stairs, but he bolted as soon as he heard our door open and was out of the house before you were halfway down. That's my point. It was an error of judgment on my part, not a want of courage. It's a mercy he had no time to take much. Well, he got the cold beef out, and precious little he had left of that. The bottle of beer he knocked over and broke in his hurry. The only thing he actually got away with was that, er, uh, that medal. At this point, Mrs Smithers' face became dark and inscrutable. That's a sad pity, she added. We shall miss it too with that inscription. For gallantry and courage presented by a few admirers of Alfred Smithers. But you'll inquire the police, of course, and as likely as not you'll get it back. I believe I was right in saying you ought to have gone to the police there and then. I believe you were, said Alfred with alacrity. It's no good going now, for the medal's certain to be in the melting pot. Besides, I've no fancy for having the police in interfering with my private business, and I think it would be just as well if we neither of us said a word about it. Oh, I must tell Mrs Warboys, said Mrs Smithers. I wouldn't miss seeing her laugh over that story were it ever so. As for poor Mrs Push... When I come to the part when I put your boots on my feet because you'll squeak louder and you'd got your head under the bedclothes and I said... Oh, look here, said Alfred desperately. I do wish you wouldn't. I'd really much rather not. It isn't often I ask for anything particular, but if that story's told, it's almost certain to be taken up in the wrong way as far as it concerns me. I've made a blunder and I've lost me medal. Ain't that enough for you? Then you've given up on the Klondike idea observed Mrs. Smithers, with more consecutiveness than was immediately apparent. Certainly, oh certainly, it was just a wandering notion that wouldn't stand thinking over, and I shall smooth old Peter Begg down all right. There'll be a little give and take, compromise on both sides, it only wants tactful handling. Garson and Begg have been very good friends to me, and I'm not going to throw them over, I couldn't do that even if you asked it. I don't ask it, said Mrs. Smithers dryly, Get that fixed right by tonight, and I won't say nothing. On his way to the city, he reflected that it would indeed require tact. However, he entered Mr. Begg's room and did his best. I've come, he said, to apologise, sir, very humbly, for the way I spoke yesterday. As you saw, I wasn't myself, sir. Then you were drunk, said Mr. Begg, with mild interest. Oh, no, sir, at least I was more drugged. I'd suffered torments all day with toothache and took a little laudanum for it, and that made me come over all anyhow. 
if i'd been myself i'd sooner have cut off my right hand that'll do said mr begg no more need be said about it in that case but when you are troubled with toothache again i should advise you either to take a little less laudanum or to take a good deal more now get on with your work thus tact triumphed mrs smithers kept a word and mrs warboys and the relict of the late charles push have missed a story which would undoubtedly have amused them smithers has returned to his natural role the newspaper cuttings have been replaced by a chromo which happened to fit the frame exactly and the happiness is general end of section 9